Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com what makes a life a good one is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect defend and save what you believe in every single day so what makes a life a good one In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome to episode 139 with my guest listener, Julie J. I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour. Two hours of honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The website for this show is mentalpod.com. Please go check it out. There's all kinds of good stuff on there. And uh, I want to remind you, uh, those of you in the greater Toronto area, I'm coming to do a live show with Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall on Saturday, November 16th at 4 p.m. There's a, a link on uh, my website uh, so you can go there and uh, buy tickets or find out more information. I'm really looking forward to it, to doing that and also tentatively planning on doing a group recording of listeners on that Friday night, November 15th, and being joined by uh, therapist Susan Hagen, who was a previous guest on this show and uh, really helped me through some confusing bullshit. Um, wouldn't it be great if that was her card? Susan Hagen, helping you through some confusing bullshit. Uh, let's get into it. I want to read, uh, this is from the shaman's, I'm sorry, the struggle in a sentence survey filled out by a woman who calls herself T-Bone about her anxiety. She writes, I have to sit or lie perfectly still or else my tendons will snap. My bones will bend backwards. My jugular will explode and my lungs will collapse. About her alcoholism slash drug addiction. She writes, it is my own decision and for my own good, but when I think that I will never again sip on an ice-cold glass of Hendrix gin with soda, cucumber, and lime, I feel like my soulmate has died and I want to weep. About being a sex crime victim, she writes, 
defiantly refusing to give in to the extreme shame and self-blame ingrained in me by this pervasive rape culture and not buying myself for one second. About her anger issues, she writes, inability to distinguish between a conversation, a debate, an argument, and a fight because everything sounds like the world is shouting accusations and insults at me and all I can do is shout back. About having borderline personality disorder, she writes, the butt end of a joke and an all-around nuisance. And about uh, her PTSD, she writes, like an overly dramatic nightmare sequence in a poorly produced TV show or movie where the character dramatically bolts awake screaming, except I'm awake and what I saw actually did happen to me and it can take hours of talking to myself in a rage before I can realize that it's not happening right now. Every human being has weird thoughts going through their head. Oh, God, it's so embarrassing. I'm afraid I'll never get another job again. That I will die and will have not been special. My brain has the gift of seeing the terrible. A million-pound tourniquet being turned against my chest that was constant. Then I started sabotaging my own career. Wanting to die and... To stop him from feeling any joy. (laughs) That is... Very uncomfortable in my own body. I ended up becoming a male prostitute. And what I became was an animal. They took away my shoelaces. I became chaos. Like it hurts. I just want to go. I just want to leave. You have no idea what a small part of your life this is. If you go to a support group, it's like creating a family that you didn't have. I mean, life is 1% event. My body was abused. 99% judgment about that event. But they couldn't touch the best parts of me. But the world is a little bit wounding. It's also glorious. It does always get better. It really does. I'm here with I'm here with Julie, uh, Julie J, who is a uh, a listener, and uh, we're using a a pseudonym for her so she can uh, she can open up more freely. And we're just laughing. This is I sublet this space that I'm recording in right now from somebody, and this is their last month of having at least. And uh, every once in a while, when I'm interviewing somebody here, the realtor will pop their head in to show a prospective tenant the space. And it can be really awkward sometimes because it's like, you know, you can be in the middle of something super emotional and, you know, the door swings open and then he touched me. And this is where we're renting. Uh, (laughs) Furniture doesn't come with it. It doesn't include the victims. (laughs) So Julie and I were just laughing about that. Um, Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. uh, We corresponded via email. You told me a little bit about your story, and I said, uh, would you be interested in recording? And your intent was not to pitch yourself as a listener when you sent me. Do you remember what your what your intent was when you sent me the email? Was it you were relating to a guest or? I think um, I it was um, I was thinking about um, adoptee issues. That's it. And maybe suggesting a guest who had been adopted as a child. Yes. So. And 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 I w- I always love when somebody suggests a subject that I haven't covered or hadn't even really thought about and i suppose i've thought about it before but there's so many other issues where i that i felt were kind of more pressing but um i think it's a it's a great topic and i'm glad uh i'm glad you're here don't let us down uh i'll try my best (laughs) so where would be a good place to to start with your story there's so many things you're you're a court reporter, or not a reporter, a transcriber. Court interpreter. Court interpreter. Uh, you speak Spanish. Correct. And um, you, is it civil? Is it 
Um, it's a combination of uh, criminal and civil. It used to be 100% criminal, and now I do both criminal and civil work. So Is the civil a little more mellow? The civil is much more mellow. Yeah. Most of the time. I mean, sometimes it gets contentious as well, but uh, criminal is everything from murderers, rapists, child molesters, so alleged Alleged, <laughs> yeah. sure, sure. Um, and I'm sure there are the, a portion of them that that were innocent. Right, right. What portion of them do you think? Um, it, the tr- from the trials that I have done, uh, maybe 1%. Yeah. So, yeah. And also, I just, as a preamble, I, I'm not here to disparage the institution of adoption. And I, I think that there are issues that are inherent to adopted kids, such as abandonment issues and attachment issues and um, identity problems. But uh, I know that there are biological situations and adoptive situations that are great and ones that are just not so great. So, um, yeah, I don't want to make it sound like adoption is so bad <laughs> don't do it no i don't uh, i i don't get the feeling that that is is going to be an issue i think one of the when the on the episodes where this podcast does succeed i think it's because we take an issue that is multifaceted and we kind of go into detail about it and we don't necessarily say, hey, this is awesome or this is terrible. It's just kind of, oh, this is what it is. How do we feel about it? How can we deal with this? Right, right. Um, so you were given up for adoption because you were born to drug-addicted teenage parents. Correct, yeah. They were 15 and 16? My biological mother was 15 and my biological father was 21. And... Well, what what state was that in? Because isn't that technically statutory uh, rape? Statutory rape. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, that was in Washington D.C. in our nation's capital, <laughs> <laughs> and um, my biological mother went to live with a relative in Japan to sort of start her life over because she had uh, drug problems. And when she got there, she realized she was pregnant, and she was five months along, and so. She had me in a hospital in Japan, and then from there, I was given to an American that I don't know who that person was, and that person contacted my parents, and he knew that my parents were adopting or in the process of adopting a son from Korea, and um, it was just like he called them up and said, hey, I got another baby here. I'm not sure if you're interested. (laughs) You want a twofer? Yeah, exactly. It's kind of like, you know, finding a home for a kitten. And um, they were like, yeah, all right, why not? Yeah, well, yeah, okay. So did they take both of you? They took both of us. And um, so my mom went from having no children and then to having two young children within the span of like two weeks. And my brother's a year older than me, and he was adopted. He was about a year and a half when he was adopted. And I'm not sure I was, I don't know, five or six months when I was adopted. So, and I, you know, I never could relate to, you know, I came out of my mommy's tummy. I always mm. felt like I came from the sphincter of an extraterrestrial. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you just feel like, man, am I an alien or something? So. Wow. And this was the early 70s. It was, there were no classes or screenings for potential parents. 
And so it was just like, you want a kid? All righty, here you go. Yeah, there's a smoking lounge. Yeah, exactly. Actually, it wasn't even a smoking lounge. It was everything was mixed. I remember the, the smoking and the no smoking section. That was my favorite where yeah. if you were on the edge of the no smoking section, it was like, oh, this is this, yeah. this is really great. You're like, fabulous. It's <laughs> yeah. fabulous. Um, yeah. Well, you know, the first thought that occurred to me, because um, I'm always filtering everything through my experience, um, is my mom had a similar situation where she didn't think she could get pregnant. They adopted my brother, who was seven months older than me, found out that she was pregnant with me, you know, like as soon wow. as the papers came through. So in two months, they had, uh, uh, in seven months, they had the both of us, and then a 13-year-old cousin came to live with us because his family was having wow. issues. So she went from having no kids to having oh three goodness. kids in a year. That's hardcore. Yeah, that's hardcore. As if she needed more stuff yeah. on her plate with all the issues <laughs> yeah. that that she had. In the She's like, traffic. I can handle it. Bring it on. <laughs> and an alcoholic uh, husband. Wow. So, um, But back to, to your situation. Um, so... Was it just your uh, your brother and you? It was just my brother and me. Yep. And what what were your parents like? What were your first impressions? My mom, uh, yeah, my dad. Your was, first impression as an infant. I know. What was, your, what was your gut feeling as you pooped your pants? <laughs> <laughs> um, my dad was in the military, and so he was he was gone a good portion of the time. I mean, I I really look back and feel like my mom essentially was the one that that raised us, sort of as a single parent in many ways. And my mom uh, was your dad a combat vet? He was a combat vet, yeah, from Vietnam, and. Um, yeah, he's very military. I remember going to see the movie Avatar and the, you know, that military general and Avatar is sort of like a caricature of of my dad. My dad doesn't really understand depression or nervousness or anxiety. He's like, "Snap out of it. Just do, snap yourself out of it." You do know? push-ups. <laughs> yeah. Wouldn't it be nice if that worked for you? Totally. Do you think that do you think that works? for him or do you think he tells himself that works for him i don't know i mean i'm i'm so envious of his his genetic makeup that whatever you know he think thinks works for him seems to be working for him <laughs> you know so he uh and sometimes you can kind of convince yourself. You can think, yeah, maybe I can just snap out of it. And That's the worst thing to tell somebody with depression. Right. Just be grateful. Yeah. Just be grateful. Exactly. Exactly. And it's interesting. My dad actually has an identical twin brother. And his twin brother had his biological children. And uh, I, my dad is from, um, his family's from Denmark originally. He's He was raised here in the United States. But he was always so like, there was such a different relationship between my dad's twin brother and his children and my dad and myself in terms of, and my dad kind of romanticized the blonde hair, blue eyed kids of my, you know, his identical twins family. Like, oh, look at them, the quintessential Scandinavians. And oh, wow. I have brown hair and brown eyes, by the way. So, and I just was like, oh, <laughs> you know, can I just dye my hair blonde and get some contacts? Strike three. But, yeah. Um, and and was your uncle more emotionally open than your father? I think that my uncle 
was more, um, it seemed like there was more of an attachment with his children. And I think my dad, I'm not saying that my dad didn't love me. I think he did. I think he does. But it's, it's in a, a, a kind of a limited, there's like a limited capacity or a I don't know how to quite explain it. And and I don't know if it's because I'm not his biological kid and he, you know, maybe he feels kind of the same way I do. Like I was dropped off by aliens and he's like, I have no idea what, mm-hmm. you know, what's going on with this kid. But um, is it fair to say that you get the feeling that your your dad is committed to trying his best to guide you, but there's a lack of empathy for what you might be feeling in your skin? Right, right. Definitely. That's really good. That's excellent. That, that That's kind of the feeling I get with those parents that are very, if not controlling, type A, fixed in their way of how they see the world, and they expect everybody to go through the world the way they go through it because it worked for them. But they either lack the ability to empathize with others or don't want to take the time to do it. Right. And I don't think they understand how much their children want to be felt. Right. And guidance is obviously super, super important, but there's got to be that feeling that you're being mirrored and that you know that your feelings are valid. Do you, what do you remember about your feelings and how your dad perceived your feelings? I think I was always really struggling to make a connection with my father, um, always trying to find common ground. And I remember as a teenager suggesting, you know, starting running together. And we used to run the, the city races, like the 5Ks and the 10Ks, and thinking, oh, this is, this is what's going to do it. This is going to seal the deal for us. And this will be our father-daughter, you know, experience. And, um, and how would he let you down during those? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, how sad. Um, I just, you know, I, I just... Uh, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe I just was hypersensitive and didn't feel like it. He was just like, all right, right on. Well, that was cool. You know, okay, let's go home. So it was not like, you know, this means so much to me. And I'd be like, this means so much to me, dad. And he's like, I'm going to need a beer, you know, (laughs) after the race or something. It sounds like he just didn't have the, doesn't know how to speak the language of, of emotion, you know? Right, right. Totally. So. I'm always amazed by like the parents you hear where they're they're like how you your dad you you describe your dad and and after they pass away they'll find a letter that they wrote to somebody gushing about their child but they never were able to say that to the child right. that just amazes me right yeah Do you, so. have you ever what is the most poignant moment that you remember? having with your dad the one that touched you the most deeply wow that's a tough one that is a that is a tough one i think the, one of the moments that touched me the most deeply was i went to his retirement uh gathering several years ago and at that time i was an elementary school teacher in watts and uh my dad got up to say to give a speech and he said and if any of you think what you're doing is important you know it's not as important as what my daughter is doing and i'm like what wow okay i mean not that i you know i mean i i did my best as a school teacher as a school teacher you always feel like a failure by the way one of your listeners uh, in the survey was saying how he didn't want to get behind on the grading and it's like three weeks into the school year you're behind i mean you're just behind yeah. on everything and 
I always felt like a failure, you know, as a, as a school teacher, even though I, I really, my heart was really dedicated to that. But uh, I, I didn't even know that my dad really knew even what I did for a living, you know, much less that he was proud of it. What, so, what did that feel like when he said that? It was shocking. I was pretty shocked. And um, I was, I felt, uh, I felt happy that I had at least made him proud in, in some way, um, which I think we're all like, I could never please you, you know? <laughs> and uh, so, yeah. I, I had this moment um, driving with my dad and I had, I was doing a radio show, this was in like 2000, and had taught myself how to use sound recording equipment and editing, and I'd bought a sound effects library, and I was doing this radio show where I would create sketches. Every week had a theme, and I would create sketches for it, and I would do voices, and I mean, it was just super involved, and it was a labor of love, and I was really proud of it, and so I put the very best ones that I had, the very best sketches onto a CD when I went home, and I thought, I'm going to play this for my dad on the way home from the airport when he picks me up, and I played it for him, and there was complete silence, and I said, so what did you think? And he just kind of looked out the window, and he said, I didn't think it was your best stuff. Oh, gosh, that's and brutal. I just remember feeling like I got punched oh, in the stomach. That's brutal. And then I remember laughing like two seconds later and going, why do you keep going to the well? Right. That's and, exactly it. And that was like the moment when I went, okay, this guy oh, clearly gosh. doesn't know how to relate to a child. Yeah. Oh, that's just brutal. I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, 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 I wasn't saying it for you to feel sorry for me, but I'm saying it to, 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 let you and the other people know that it's so common to have that feeling of going to the well that's Gosh, dry. we always go back. We I always, always go, go back. It's crazy making. It is crazy making. In fact, last Thanksgiving, I went to my folks' house and made the entire Thanksgiving meal for them. And I like to cook. And and uh, But I had bought a pumpkin cheesecake from Trader Joe's as the dessert. And at the end, my dad was like, where's the pumpkin pie? You know, where's the homemade pumpkin pie? And I remember thinking, you know, it was funny in a way. I mean, it was kind of hurtful. But at the same time, you're like, all righty. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> and mental note to self. <laughs> you yeah. Know? So, but. And what was your, are both your parents still alive? They are. My mom, unfortunately, is uh, has severe dementia now, so she's a, a different person now than than she used yeah. to be. So, how old are your folks? My folks are. Um, my dad is seventy six, and my mom is seventy seven. And uh, how old are you? I am forty three years old. Okay. Um, so what what was your mom like? My mom, uh, she was a fundamentalist Christian, and. Um, my dad actually hopped on board that train a little later down the line. But, and I think, you know, her religion gave her a lot of comfort. And, uh, she, um, yeah, there's some interesting things that happened, that's for sure. She had a very terrible childhood. She was sexually abused by her biological father over an extended period of, 
time. I mean, from the time she was a, a small child till the time she left home. Oh my God! And um, oh. it, and, she, and I think you know she turned to religion. I mean, it's sort of. Um, it was a, a comfort for her. And on a side note, she had my grandfather babysit us as children. And I remember asking her about that later. I was like, you think that was a good idea? <laughs> and she, uh, she was like, you know, the Lord tells us we need to forgive. And I love my father. And I forgive him. And you need to learn to forgive him, too. And interestingly, I don't remember any incidents with my grandfather at all, but my mom came home once to find him with no pants on in, in my room. And I don't have any recollection of that. So it's like, if a tree falls in the forest and no one here, yeah. does it count? I, but, you know, and oddly enough, she, you know, she continued to have him babysit us. After he, she found him with no exactly. pants in your room? Oh, my. And I think it was God. just like this, it's this level of denial that just, you know, and I think the theme, I think the general theme of my childhood when I look back is just unprotected, just completely not protected at all. And um, you feel like, you know, I think in a way I just felt like I wasn't worth protecting. And the other thing that strikes me is that your your parents both sound like uh, slaves is too strong of a word, but slaves to tradition. Right. Where the thought of questioning what happened before them and questioning the authority was just too terrifying for either of your your parents because I right. mean that to survive in the military you can't question authority. Right. And for your mom to have survived that and then to become a fundamentalist Christian, I mean you you can't be asking yourself. You can't be questioning. Um, it just sounds like it was a safe way for them to turn their, their minds off and to say, I'm going to accept everything as it is. And while I, th- I think there's a certain kind of beautiful surrender in that, there's a lot of shit getting swept under the carpet. Right. That's a really, really good observation. Yes, totally. Totally. And uh, my mom, it's interesting because she invented these refrains for each my brother and I, and she would just interject them at regular intervals. And I think that she thought that, you know, they, they were something positive. And mine was, you were headed for a Japanese orphanage, and if we hadn't adopted you, you would have landed in that orphanage and no Japanese would have ever adopted you because you're not Japanese, you know. And, and she would say this to you over for and what purpose? Over. And I think it was to, to um, like... Ma- say, ma- make you grateful? Like make me feel grateful or make me feel relief that I had been saved from certain doom. And my brother's, I feel bad my brother's was worse than mine. My brother's was. And just as an aside, there was no basis in reality for either of these. I think these were things that she just made up and um his was you were the son of a korean prostitute and if we hadn't adopted you you would have been a steely boy on the streets of seoul korea her words (laughs) yeah oh my and i remember my brother and i I mean just made us feel like shit and uh, yeah (laughs) wow wow and i suppose in your mom's mind she thought she was imbuing you with gratitude and she didn't know that she was making you feel like trash right totally totally and that's in in her defense and i feel bad because i feel like i don't want to paint these people out to seem like these one-dimensional 
characters and I remember listening to your show with Christian Finnegan and he was mm. like and now I'm rounding up to just rip them to shreds <laughs> <laughs> I mean there definitely were sweet moments and um, things like that and uh, unfortunately the overarching theme of things was was not that which is well let's th- hear some of the some of the sweet ones because yeah. I think a lot of times that gets lost and I'm as much to blame as anybody else um and I think that that's what makes confronting the abusive times so difficult because you can't hold those two ideas at the same time right. or it's very difficult to. to right. You feel to, like you're betraying one version or another. Yeah, but people are complicated. Very, very complicated. Um, my mom used to sew and she sewed matching outfits for us and she uh, entered us in a mother-daughter look-alike contest. <laughs> <laughs> so did you look uh, we alike? did not look alike and we did not place <laughs> in that contest <laughs> unfortunately but I felt so bad I mean it's something that's so poignant because from the perspective of a, of a woman who wasn't able to have her biological children you know to to enter us in this contest to create this you know bond or I don't know Do you was, think she was doing it for her or for you I don't know. I, um, I, I'm not sure. I, I'm sure it was partially for her in, in a few ways, but, uh, yeah. So how did you feel? Oh, what are some other, some other sweet moments that you can think of? Um, let's see. That's it. Yeah, that's all. The failed the contest. <laughs> the failed contest. The rest was a parade of tears. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. Um, I may have to get back to you on those. I can, you know, there's there's some funny, fun, I mean, well, they're not very sweet, but it's interesting because I read this author whose name is uh, Elizabeth Kim, and she wrote this beautiful memoir about, uh, she was from Korea, and she was adopted by a fundamentalist couple. I guess adoption's real big in the fundamentalist (laughs) uh, circles, so... um, and there were so many things that uh, were just I read that rang true, and um, her situation was a million times worse than mine. But there are things in there that just seem so implausible that a person that isn't a fundamentalist just could not have any any point of reference for. And so I, I can give you a couple of those nuggets. <laughs> sure, sure. And you know, my thought about the fundamentalists adopting is. Thank God. Thank God. You know, the people right. that are vehemently anti-abortion, when they step up and they do adopt kids, right. I think to myself, well, hey, I- at least they're being consistent in their in their view. It's right. the ones that, you know, are anti-abortion right. and, and they're taking a thousand fertility drugs right. and w- adoption is yeah. completely out of the question. It's <laughs> like they want people to, to birth these children, yeah. but they don't really care what happens to them once yeah, they're, exactly. they're birthed. Um, I want to say the word birthed one more birthed. time. Birthed. <laughs> yeah, I like it. Uh, so go ahead. You were, you were starting to, to also, say. Also, interestingly, I, I had also discovered that um, there are counselors that are specially trained to uh, work with people who were traumatized by fundamentalist upbringings, which I don't know where these counselors are, but uh, I probably need to find one. Mostly bars. <laughs> yeah, exactly. In Baptist towns. <laughs> <laughs> So, um, yeah, the, uh, my mom had a, had a violent, uh, temper. She was very, uh, 
volatile and, and violent. And I was a clumsy kid. I was uncoordinated and had motor skill problems, which I later discovered is common among kids that are born to very young mothers. And she um, thought that... I would imagine also if they were uh, drug addicts and, and alcoholics, right, exactly. th- that can yeah, also that affect... Might. Yeah, the coordination issues. Yeah, And impulse control is the other thing I've heard with um, fetal... Al- I'm not saying your situation, but fetal alcohol syndrome. Somebody told me that one of the, the um, symptoms of it is that that person grows up having difficulty with impulse control. Right, right. And I, yeah, I'm not so sure I struggle too much. I mean, I think I, I mentioned in one of my emails to you that sometimes I launch, I say something really inappropriate, you know, but that happens not too frequently, but it's... <laughs> what was the example that you yeah. that you gave me? Was, I hope you and your family get ass-fucked by a clan of macaques. <laughs> <laughs> and I've said stuff like that before, which is horrific. <laughs> what are macaques? Um, they... <laughs> <laughs> um, they are a species of like I don't know monkey or baboon or something. <laughs> yeah, so that is I don't know. fantastic. <laughs> I always think of that moment from um, uh, oh, what is that Martin Scorsese movie, uh, The King of Comedy, where the uh, Jerry Lewis is on the payphone and the woman fan is uh saying I love your stuff I love it you know thank you very much you're you're my favorite comedian ever thank you thank you very much can I get an autograph uh, ma'am I'm 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 busy right now you should die of cancer <laughs> <laughs> oh it's too funny but yeah I yeah. I do I do love that when it's just all of a sudden out of nowhere, it just uh, yeah that rage just pops up. Well, how could your mom not have all of that negative energy that she took from your grandfather oh, right. over those years? How could that not come out in some exactly. sick, sick way? And I, I don't, I think that she had rage blackouts, which makes total sense. I think she wasn't really aware of what she was saying or doing when she would go into these rage blackouts and she was she was very controlling fastidiously clean and i think just you know anything that threatened sort of the order of things was extremely upsetting to her and so you know klutzy me you know spilling milk or dropping something and breaking it and she's like you know she just she freaked out about that kind of thing. And it was a vicious cycle because it caused anxiety for me. I'd be like, please, dear God, don't let me spill the milk. Because <laughs> you know, so I'm like drinking milk out of a glass or something. And then I, you know, I'd spill it and get punished for it. And were you, were you hit? I or? was, yes, I was hit. Um, uh, she had, um, yes, she had a few, of a few signature moves. <laughs> Yeah, she. What uh, were they? Her signature moves. Uh, she used to grab me by my ears and uh, smash my head against the wall. That was a signature move. Oh my and god! Then, I'm um, so sorry. That is that. What did that feel like? It uh, was. Yeah, it was. It wasn't. Uh, I. You know, I don't know anymore. I can't really. I. I can't really remember if that makes any sense would, i mean i remember i remember the motion of it but i don't remember the the pain the physical pain of it 
And I remember going into my room afterward, and I had a couple stuffed animals on my bed, and I would sit and talk to them, and my stuffed animals would say, you are a very bad little girl. You need to shape up. And now, you know, I look back, and I think, I didn't even have my stuffed animals on my team, (laughs) you know? I'm like, couldn't I have said, hey, you know, we're with you, well, you know? And I remember, unfortunately, and I think that this happens with a lot of kids that are in this type of situation, it's like I was so convinced that I was bad and horrible that I became dependent on these beatings to atone for my quote-unquote badness, if that makes any sense. It does make sense. It does make sense. I, I think when we're little and we're struggling and our lives are overwhelming, we need to create some type of system in our brain of how things work. We need to create some type of logic, and oftentimes it has to fit with what's happening in a way that doesn't betray uh, the people in charge of us because then we have to think the terrifying thought that this person is in charge of me for the next however many years. So I need to create some way to picture the logic of all of this in a way that lets my parents off the hook so I can so I can survive. And so often then it's, I'm a bad person. That's the, that's the easiest route to go is to blame yourself. And I remember I loved my parents so much. I loved them and I... I um I wanted them to I wanted them to be proud of me and I wanted to be like their biological child and work for that and somehow I thought that if I could fulfill whatever it was they wanted me to fulfill that I could achieve that somehow. What did you in your mind what did you think that was? Did you or, or were you searching to find what that was? I think I was searching to find what that was or I was a very sensitive kid and very um, I always was kind of like you know trying to gauge you know where they were at emotionally and trying to um, placate them in that fashion so and unfortunately with my mom there really just wasn't a formula to follow to to achieve that she you know unfortunately had had her own uh demons that she was battling and there just was not anything that you could do to avoid I, I it was funny your I, your guest Mark Roberts I think mentioned that as well in terms of his his upbringing that there just wasn't a formula in terms of uh, in terms of not having them be mad at you or upset with you or disappointed in you so I had I had to have been really scary and frustrating yeah, I, uh, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was, it was frustrating, but. What, what, what do you remember thinking about yourself, your image of yourself? Um, I just thought that I was the spawn of Satan, that I had just come from hell, literally, and I was like, and I and it's the crazy thing is is I still like struggle with that, and I feel like I do all of these outward things to be like I'm not from hell. I'm you know I'm donating to charity. I'm you know I'm helping this person with their groceries to the car. You know I you know and I I try to do all these things, but it, it, deep down I'm still like you know you're you're from Satan, and 
just so you have a point of reference, um, my mom, when I was about four years old, and my mom was really, really big in, into talking about demons and demon possession. That was a huge topic of conversation for her. And she came into my room when I was about four years old and said, your room is filled with demons. And she said, but don't worry. All you need to do is invoke the name of Jesus Christ and these demons can't harm you. But you have to believe 100% with your whole heart because if you have any doubt, these demons will know and uh, then they will be able to bring you harm. And I remember thinking... Oh my God! It was, you know, and I remember like saying in my, my head as a kid, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. And then... In the back of my head, I'm like, I don't really know if I believe. That is the biggest. I can't think of a more torturous sentence to say to a child than that. It caused um, severe insomnia for my entire childhood. I was terrified, and I would soak my sheets with sweat just out of pure fear, and I couldn't sleep. Because I was certain, I just was certain that that's where I came from, and they were coming back to, to get me. And um, and my mom, uh, as a response to my insomnia, she would say, "Your biological parents must have been mentally ill for you to have these problems." <sighs> and so, I'm yeah. so sorry, Julie. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of it's. There's a funny element to it now, so. I'm sorry, but I can't even laugh at that. And I've heard a lot of stuff on this show, but the the that has to be some of the worst psychological torture that I've heard in the 120 odd episodes that we've done of this show. Wow. Wow. Yeah, I you know I I think that she was trying to protect me and that that was something that she really believed in and um and um i mean another story that's this will be i won't belabor these stories but is um and it's so absurd now i mean now when i look back on it i'm like oh it's just so absurd you know but as a kid you know your parent could just tell you anything and of course you're gonna be like okay i'm on board you know i believe it and uh she, I, I was about eight years old, and I was playing with my dolls, and she came into my room, and she picked up one of my dolls and said, uh, this doll is possessed by, by a demon. And she said, the only way to get rid of a demon is to set this doll on fire and, and burn it. And within a flash, my brother's in the background, you know, looking really eager, and she has, like, the garbage can lid and, a, like, a pack of matches. He's like, right on, that's what we have to do. <laughs> And now, you know, and of course, I'm like, oh, by all means, listen, by all means, let's get rid of it. And um, I mean, now, you know, when you look back on that and you recount that to someone, you know, people are like, are you kidding? You've got to be kidding. And uh, uh, it sounds like your mom got high from imbuing herself with this power to Maybe I don't sort out the supernatural. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like in a way she was making herself like your God. Like I know these things that you can't see. That right. That I mean, what an ego trip. Maybe I. I don't. You know, and in a way, I feel like. You know, she's always been the type where she's like, I know where I'm going when I die. You know, I'm going to see my savior, and I. 
anybody that is so convinced of something like that, in a way, there's like, I feel some envy. I feel like, wow, that's great. I, I don't, you know, I... Mm. Maybe I don't have that kind of assurance about. I don't even know where I'm going for dinner. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> and you know, and I think it's in that way. In all, there's you know many sort of sectors you can go to, like you know, Sakagaka Buddhism, and these people are chanting, and they you know they believe this chant will bring them these great, and maybe it does, and maybe just by the fact that they do it, it does, and and I think I just don't have that gene where I just I'm just a, a skeptic, so. Or I think I think there's so many possibilities. Well, I you know I kind of shudder to think what you would have been like if you had drank the Kool Aid, just like with all the <laughs> stuff that had happened to you, if you hadn't become uh, a seeker and a questioner, and a you know I I I picture you in an unhappy marriage, abusing your kids verbally, and. You know, believing in some traditional orthodoxy right. to explain away your rage, but then unleashing your rage on people less powerful than you. Huh. That that's the image that I have in my mind of that somebody. Seems to be the yeah. Somebody that doesn't do the soul searching because it sounds like to me, how could your mom do soul searching when she when that would involve going. I was molested right. from two to eighteen by the man who was supposed to protect me. I mean, right. who? I I understand people not wanting to go into that dark dungeon of rage and fear and sadness and abandonment and all all of that stuff. But man, it's such a price to pay to not go in there and poke around and say, how did that stuff really make me feel? Right. And in a lot of ways, I mean, she, I, you know, I think that she survived in the way that she was able to. And there is something to be said for that. I mean, I, there were casualties, but... Um, what do you mean when you say casualties? In terms of, you know, victims of her or her rage or her abuse and um meaning you and her brother exactly yeah. or yeah. you and your brother exactly so but at the same time you know i think well it does exhibit some strength that she you know that she she went on and she made it in some way so i can cut this out if you if you'd like, what's the worst thing you've ever done? The worst thing I've ever done? Oh, gosh. I think, I know this is going to sound really pathetic. I don't, there's, I don't know. The thing that I regret the most, um, I sat behind this kid in the sixth grade, and his name was Joey. And he had a um, deformed arm because he had been um, burned in a severe uh, fire or something. And I was such good friends with Joey. And the kids started making fun of us and calling us boyfriend and girlfriend. And uh, I, you know, was mortified, obviously. And then when Valentine's Day came around, I gave everybody a Valentine except for Joey. Why? <laughs> 
because I just was like, I don't want them to think that there's oh. something happening between us. I know I that's gotcha. not bad, bad, but it's still, it's horrible. Like, I wish I could go back and be like, I mean, he was so hurt by that. And I just wish that I had not been so concerned with what other people thought and i you know i wish i could just be like yeah fuck you you know but you were a kid i know but still what's the worst thing you've done as an adult that you can think of telling people they should be fucked in the ass by a macaque yeah i uh (laughs) yeah probably that or just saying really horrific things like that and it, it like i said it happens maybe once every two to three years but it's almost like something that i can't control like something takes over and I just say something, you know, and like there's all these, you know, filters going, don't do it. No. Oh, oh it, it's out. Oh, there it is. It's gone. That's it. That's the It's over, you know. So, yeah. I'm back to applying chapstick. I, <laughs> yeah, I compulsively put chapstick on. What What is the theory or feeling behind putting the chapstick on it just feels good to do it or your lips do actually get dry i think when i'm nervous yeah they totally they get dry my mouth just dries out so are you nervous oh yeah why (laughs) i suppose because splaying my yeah yeah, splaying everything on a buffet to yeah to the general population well you know uh, almost all the 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 guests, except for friends of mine that are that are comedians, most of the guests that I have always tell me that they're nervous before before we start, and I understand. You know, I some of this stuff is hard to even think about, let alone voice to another human being, let alone say into a microphone. You know, right, that's, that's going to be aired. But um, I hope you know that I'm on your side, and I'm not looking to make you look bad or do a gotcha or tell you you're possessed by the devil yeah I'd, but i would funny. like to remind you that if it weren't for me you'd be in a japanese orphanage <laughs> and nobody would adopt you i totally appreciate that about you and i've listened to so many of your podcasts and uh it's uh, they're all just uh, amazing and and uh, so helpful to 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 so many people i know well i appreciate that it it's You know, for so much of my life, I thought the answer was to try to control other people instead of to just listen and not judge them. And when I got sober and I experienced people just listening to me and not judging me, I realized that's what I've wanted my whole life. Right. I always thought it was about impressing people or controlling people, that that was the solution. And I now realize that those are drugs Right. Really dangerous drugs uh, to me. It's so hard to look at the things about yourself that need work in a way that doesn't demonize you. Right. In a way that says, oh, okay, I'm not perfect. That's okay. That's just my particular wart or whatever whatever you want to call it in a a way that doesn't make you less less than anybody else, but just kind of let you know, hey, this is a little issue I got. I'm just going to kind of keep an eye on that and hopefully give other people the leeway that they've given me in so many circumstances because I couldn't see that that's what I was doing. Right. Yeah. Does that make sense? Do you feel feel like you are able to 
look at parts of yourself that are flawed in a way that isn't self-hating but is accepting and hey let's move forward and just be aware of this wow it's tough i think it's so much easier for me to forgive other people and not forgive myself and um it's forgiving yourself is just such a huge huge i mean cognitively i can see how it's done but in terms of being able to emotionally synthesize that it uh it's just such a challenge it seems um it seems sometimes so difficult so i don't i don't think i have gotten i think i deal with severe issues of self-hatred what are some of the greatest hits in your in your mind of why julie's a piece of shit um, I feel like I just made all the wrong decisions. Uh, I, and unfortunately, shitty situations beget shitty situations. And as you might imagine, I chose terrible people for, for love partners, um, people that mimicked my, my home life situation. And, um, as a result, you know, now I'm, I'm 43. I'm, I'm single. I, I'm not married. I don't have children. I'm not in a stable family situation. And it was tough because I feel like my friends and classmates went on to establish these stable situations and, and, uh, my personal life played out like a low rent episode of cops, you know? <laughs> and it's just, it's embarrassing. I carry so much shame about that. And, um, it's just, it, you know, and I've had friends say, you need to go get yourself some self-esteem, you know? And I'm like, all righty, I'll head to my woodshed and cobble a little <laughs> of that together. Well, you you know, think, where do you, where do you get that from? You know? Yeah. You know, so, so funny, Julie, the, the first five minutes of meeting you, my first thought was she looks so put together. <laughs> she's got a good sense of humor. She's personable. And yet you have this incredibly low self-esteem. You, you, you have the thing that so many of us suffer from. And I've had people tell me this before. I wish you could see yourself through my eyes. I wish you could see yourself through the eyes of the universe that created you and, and see that those good parts of yourself, you know, that's mighty kind. Thank you so much. I'll be writing a check to you momentarily. <laughs> uh, yeah. I... What do you like about yourself? Um, that I haven't given up yet. That I have not given up yet. That I just... Uh, I, I think I'm a kind-hearted person and I I try to give as much as... I can. And I think that's a good coping mechanism for anyone who struggles with the kind of issues that we do in terms of getting ourselves out of our space and, and serving other people. But uh, outside of that, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. You got a good sense of humor. Can you see that? Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, sometimes. It depends on the day. Definitely depends on the day. So, yeah, and there's, you know, and I do think that, you know, there are, sometimes you look back at your life and you're like, man, that's absurd, you know, I can't, and there is humor in um, just, 
in those things, which you, I mean, ultimately you have to laugh at, at those things and not just, you know, steep in the brine of agony, you know, which is so easy. It's so easy just to, you know, settle into that liquid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but it's hard. I mean, I think that there is there's so much loss in life and there's so much like you were saying like where you're going to that well you're going to your dad and you put this thing out that you created and that you put your heart and your soul into which was that the you know the voiceover tape that you made and and to have your dad it was a cd it wasn't a cassette god damn it this fucking interview is over (laughs) you can tell how old i am right (laughs) yeah in my 40s it's all about the tapes i'm 50 you look very young by the way thank you but um you know it's like it's the loss of coming to the realization that you're never going to get anything out of that and it's almost like a death to grieve when you finally come to that point where you say this man isn't is not going to wrap his arms around me and say, good job, son. I'm so proud of you, you know, and letting those people go in our lives. You know, I still yearn for them. I mean, I have a very superficial relationship with my parents and I've had that relationship for years just out of just because that's the way it panned out. It's not that I wanted it to be that way. I wanted it to be so much more. But they they didn't want that. And I have to respect their wishes and go to people that do want that. So who, who do you go to? I've got great friends. I, um, I have a biological sister who's just an amazing person. How did you find her? I, it's kind of, that's a convoluted story, which I might not, it might be boring, but, um, and just to, so, just to clear any kind of confusion up, she and I share the same biological father and our biological mothers are sisters. So it sounds like very Mormon, but it's uh, drugs were the mitigating factor gotcha. in that equation. And how old is she? She's three years older than I am. And I remember as a child, you know, sitting in my or laying in my bed and just praying for a sister and wanting to have a sister that loved me. And I got that. I got it. What did that feel like? Huge. It's just, you know, when I, and I, I met her later in life, I was about 29 years old, and she is so loving, and it's like she, her life was horrific in a whole, a whole different way, and she was raised by my paternal grandmother, and we just cling to each other now, and... Um, she live near you? She doesn't. She lives on the other side of the country, so, but we... We see each other, and uh, we spent our first Christmas together last year, which was super emotional. And um, does she have a family? She has. She is. She's married. She has a daughter and a grandson. So, but yeah. obviously, she, she, there's something—a bond with you—that's very kind of primal and. It is. It sounds like almost unshakable. And the interest, when we met each other, we just, you know, we touched each other's faces and like looked at each, our bodies and like our similarities and we we're like, oh my gosh, you know, somebody that looks like me and, um. That must have been amazing. It really was. And it was amazing that she was so open to it like I was, you know, because you hear these other people like, okay, whatever. Nice to meet you. Take it easy, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and it's a huge, huge blessing, and I'm really grateful for that. What do you remember thinking or feeling in that moment when you were touching each other's faces and going, you look like me, and 
and seeing that her energy and her curiosity matched yours, that the well wasn't dry. It was just so surreal. It was like the twilight zone, you know? And it was beautiful. It was super fulfilling. I mean, very, very fulfilling. And do you get that feeling when you connect to her now, when you talk to her on the phone? Yes, and we laugh about, you know, she has the same issues I do with depression, and she'll call, and we'll laugh about our issues together, and She'll say, oh, do you feel like this? I'm like, I totally feel like that. You know, and, we, and she, she thinks, oh, you know, damn, our biological father, we got these genes from him. <laughs> and I, I have a relationship with him as well. Um, so Is he still an addict? or He is an addict still. I cannot believe he's alive. Like, I just can't believe that man is still alive. I, I guess what I meant was, is he still a practicing addict? Uh, He's a addict. practicing addict. He, uh, he doesn't, he, uh, he does not use the hard drugs anymore. He, uh, he's an alcoholic and he smokes marijuana pretty much all the time, which I guess some people, you know, I guess that's fine for some people, but he, he's a really interesting character. He's got these kind of philosophical things to say sometimes. He's like, well, you know, I'm a backstreet Buddha. You know, he'll come up with these really <laughs> odd sayings. But and sometimes he gets inappropriate. Like I remember he said, uh, you know, if you weren't my biological daughter, we could be boyfriend and girlfriend. Oh. And I was like, that's oh. inappropriate. <laughs> yeah. What did so. that feel like? Um, really depressing, um, very depressing. I think as any female feels, we feel objectified and I definitely feel disposable as a female. Like you, and I remember when I was 26 feeling old, like, oh, I'm over the hill. I'm 26, you know, and now I'm like, geez, you know, I, it's just, uh, it's hard though. Oh, you know what that sound means. It's time to give uh, our sponsor a little bit of love. And actually, our, our sponsor this week is uh, is not actually a sponsor. It's a charity that uh, I want to plug. Um, it's called Comedy Gives Back. And uh, it's it's on November 6th, and it's a 24-hour live-streamed benefit for um, Malaria No More. Uh, those of the, you that are for more malaria... You can still tune in and uh, enjoy the comedy, but I have a feeling that you're probably a pretty tough comedy fan. Uh, the website that um, that this benefit uh, comedy gives back is on is dailymotion.com. Um, and did you know that you can donate as little as a dollar uh, to Malaria No More, and that saves a life? You don't get to pick which life, though. So um, you do take the gamble that you're going to be keeping some potential asshole alive but i still think it's worth rolling the dice um so if you want to know more uh you can go to comedygivesback.com and uh you can also just go there and donate and don't forget to check it out it's november 6th on dailymotion.com and uh thank you in advance for supporting this this great event and um again donate and learn more at comedygivesback.com I had mentioned to you, I think, in my um, email that um, I was involved in the youth group and the youth pastor was, uh, he, you know, he did unsavory things. <laughs> and <laughs> that, that is the first time that that you, word has been used. 
to describe <laughs> molestation. Unsavory. He didn't use the right spices. Yeah, exactly. Uh, how old was he and how old were you? I was 14 and I think, I don't know his exact age, I think he was in his late 30s. And um, of course... Did he groom you? He. Um, <laughs> no, I don't mean physically groom you. Did he groom you as in... Winning your trust. Oh, you're my buddy. Oh, you're, absolutely. And it was just like. Get you away from the pack. Yeah. And, you know, the crazy thing, I mean, made me feel special. And, and I, you know, I was total, I ate it all up. I, you know, I wanted to please him and wanted to make him happy and wanted to, you know, continue to get what he was giving. And, um, it, yeah, it, uh, the interesting thing is, is during that same time, he went on uh, that game show or that dating show, The Love Connection, and his date said, this man is not interested in grown women. He spent our entire date ogling young teenage girls. Really? So, <laughs> and you know, in the, and sometimes, you know, and I feel like uh, I, I have such mixed feelings about that whole episode because... In a way, I feel like there's part of me that's like, ah, who can blame the guy? You know, we were hot pieces of ass, you know, but, and then, and, and philosophically, you think there's this biological element to it where, and again, you know, yeah, biological element, you've got to employ cognitive override, but I feel bitter toward the biological realities, which are, you know, young teenage girl symbolizes the incarnation of fecundity, you know, which means, you know, he's thinking, bend over and let me fertilize you. You know what I mean? And uh, I, it definitely is like there's a self-control, self-control issues, obviously, and obviously it's, you know. And the other thing is, is I... So you understand his impulse. You don't understand his not stifling right. his impulse. I think that I... I think I understand him not stifling, too. I think I feel like, yeah, it must be hard for people to, you know, you see these teenage girls who are perfect. And, you know, I didn't know I was, quote, I didn't think I was perfect then. But now, of course, I look at pictures and with me and my girlfriends at church camp in our bathing suits. And I'm like, holy shit. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, uh, geez. But, uh and the and, irony is that those girls look at themselves in the mirror and fucking hate themselves. Right, exactly, right? You just spend your entire life hating yourself. And that's and reading the surveys of people from that listen to this podcast, it's like, man, we just hate ourselves. We all just hate ourselves. Why couldn't I have appreciated myself as totally molestable? Exactly, right. Hey, <laughs> that's too funny. And I think... I think... I feel like, um, I felt like such a chump. I just felt like after I realized that, hey, wait a minute, you know, this is not cool. And then. Did when, it happen one time or multiple times? It happened over the, over a period of about two to three years. And, and how did he ease his way into it? What, you know, I'm fascinated by the, the gamesmanship of the, right. the the predator and how it, it you know it's almost like fishing you know where they throw it out there right. and there's a reeling in yeah. and there's a um 
in increasing, uh, you know, where they just step things up bit by bit by bit, and there's a sick genius to it. What, Definitely. What was his sick genius? That's such a good question. I think it was so insidious at first. And at first it started off with a lot of compliments like, oh, you know, your eyes are beautiful. And, and that sort of, it sort of started Which off your dad with, never said to you. Right. right? Exactly. It was like, uh, you got a good eyes. <laughs> yeah. Good run. <laughs> I'm gonna go kill Charlie. <laughs> Oh my goodness, too funny. Yeah, you notice these compliments. But, uh, and this, uh, the funny thing is, is when I compared notes with other victims of his, it's like he fed us all the same bullshit, you know, and we're like, wait a minute, he said that exact same thing to me, you know, you're the only one and this is our special relationship and, you know, that type thing. Man, they should teach kids in first grade if anybody ever tells you you know, th- this is what we have is special. <laughs> just there should be like a button <laughs> yeah, that right. you can just push. That right, yeah, totally. Because I hear that phrase over and over and over mm-hmm. again. Is people wouldn't understand what we have. What we have is special. We can't tell the others right. about this. Um, right. That he he fed you all that stuff too. Right, yeah. So how did it start off and how did it progress? Um, if you're comfortable talking about it. I don't, you're not- yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think like, again, it was very insidious and then... Um, and, and your attraction to the situation was purely um, because he made you feel special with his words. Right, and I think... Yeah, exactly. I felt special and I felt like I was getting love. The attention, the look in his eyes. Exactly. And physical affection. And um, yeah, so um, and and I think, you know, I, I was brainwashed. I mean, I think I thought I would marry him or something. You know, I think I was like, oh, we're totally going to get married. And you were 14 and he was 30. I was 14 and he was in his late 30s. Wow. You know, I just, I was, and I didn't start to break out of that. I think it was around my senior year of high school where um, he had come to uh, some school event that I was in, and and my teacher said, "Oh, it's so nice that your dad could come." <laughs> and for some reason, I'm like, "My dad, you know." This is my lover. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I just, you know, then I started thinking, "Hey, wait a minute." Because you then, weren't seeing him as a dad figure, right? No, you were seeing him no, as no, a as a boyfriend, right? As a, exactly. As a right. That is amazing. It's amazing how the human brain can see what it wants to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like the like the beautiful person looking at themselves in the mirror and seeing a gargoyle. Right. You know, God. Um. Did it ever? What were what were the alarm bells that were going off in your head, and when did they start? Did it, they start before that person said, oh, so glad your dad could come? I think that as far as I remember, that was right around the time that they started. And I remember I started to kind of extricate myself from the situation. 
And, um, and I didn't get any opposition from him because, of course, he had hedged his bets with several other situations. <laughs> You know, so... Um, and 18, you were getting along in the tooth. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> and, uh, right. And I, and then I, and then I went off to college and then that, and then at college was really when I was like, wait a minute, you know, this whole thing was just, was wrong. And I did go back to the church a few years after that with a couple of the other victims and we went to the church elders, which probably was not we probably should have just gone to the police but and we said look you know this guy's a pedophile he's a pervert and they just ripped us i mean just ripped us to shreds so and 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 how, i how just like do you have you know they were like do you have any evidence where's your, where are the semen samples or you know uh, just like 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 you would yeah like why would, would somebody make that up and i know there are the occasional circumstance where somebody does do that and it's awful but god can't you not be a dick for that right and why would so many and the thing is is there were the, the numbers are staggering and and he he's this revered of course revered member of the community he's very charismatic and has these people that just defend him tooth and nail no matter no matter what so um and i you know i think i don't know that it would have done any good if we had gone to the police either because he knew everybody i mean it was not a super small community but it was a a pretty decent sized community and he just knew everybody and um I think the thing now that weighs he- most heavy on my heart is doing the line of work that I do. I know the recidivism for pedophiles is like 99.9%. Like I I mean what are the odds that he's like, "Oh, yeah, I'm stopping that." I mean, I think that you know, he's probably still victimizing people and that's that's the hard part. Is there any thing that you can do to I mean, have you have you gone to the police, or is it just something you? I think at this phase, like I, I just wouldn't do it. I'm, I feel like, um, you know, I, I, I and, ter- and and it sounds so selfish, and I know it's selfish. I just can't put myself up for that type of, um, you know. I'm sure I mean they could go back and be like, oh, she's got mental problems. You know, this girl's got mental problems. Yeah. You know, and and I'm like, yep, you're right. I do. I do have mental problems. But I wonder is can police be and, and I don't mean to feel make you feel guilty or pressured about this, but my thought is of those those girls that are going on the church trips with this guy right now that have no idea what they're getting into, you know, I was wonder I wonder and I'm just throwing this question out there, is this something you can call the FBI and say, Hey, you know, surveil this guy or I suppose it's not a federal thing, but I, I wonder is there a way that somebody could watch this guy because it seems like within the span of two weeks you would have evidence on this guy that you could go right i don't know you know like anonymously call right do you know what town he lives in i do yeah maybe maybe i have some homework to do yeah (laughs) or maybe we'll do it we'll do it for you i don't know if you don't feel like doing it but it just it I hate to think that there's somebody out there actively. Right. And who knows? I mean, maybe maybe he's not. I don't, you know, I, I don't know. If he hasn't been caught. 
Right. I, I don't. I can't imagine. Right. I can't imagine. You know, most people have a conscience, and the compulsion to do something that goes against your conscience has to be so strong that I think you don't have the power of choice. Right, right. If that if that guy does have a conscience, his compulsion is overriding his conscience. Right. Maybe. Or maybe 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 he feels entitled to it or maybe I I, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, who knows? So Did we dwell on it too much? I dwell. Yeah. Steeping in the yeah. That whole dynamic, I feel like I could do a hundred episodes on it and still have questions of right how they get away with it, um, how it le- leaves the person feeling. You know, the most fascinating thing to me is how the child can be convinced that this person is appropriate. Right. And then feel completely differently um, and appropriately a short time thereafter. Do you think it's because that person does such a good job of talking to them as if they're their age? Probably so. So so that you don't think of them as the 30-year-old. Right. You think of them as, oh, this guy's... He's cool. (laughs) Right. Instead of to somebody who is older, it'd be, no, that's creepy. Right. That's not cool. Right. I don't know. What's your... I'm not sure. I I just don't know. I... Were you physically attracted to this guy at any point, or was it just an emotional... It was both. It was definitely both. Um, Yeah. Did the attraction, the physical attraction, come in at a certain point, or was that there in the beginning? It came in. It came. It definitely came in. I mean, after you're showered with, you know, attention and and quote unquote love, and and someone complimenting you. Um, so yeah, it definitely, definitely came in after. So okay. Yeah. Thank you for being being honest about um, all that. I know that's got to be hard to 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 talk about. What are you thinking and feeling right now? I, you know, and I I remember listening to this episode of uh, This American Life, and this guy, he just really wanted to, you know, kill his abuser and and I never felt that way I think I turned it all on myself and I still do I think I'm like oh I was such an idiot you know why didn't I why couldn't I have been smarter why couldn't I have deflected that or so and that's I think that's the hardest part for me is that issue I encourage you to go look at a picture of yourself when you're 14 years old and look at a picture of a third not necessarily him but look at a picture of a guy in his late 30s and then ask yourself out loud, why couldn't I have been smarter than this person? Right, right. Yeah. And I think you'll get your answer. Right, yeah. Because a lot of times I think when we look to blame ourselves, we we picture ourselves as a little adult. We picture right. ourselves, we shrink us down. Totally. You know, 
like yeah. like we still have the smarts of a, of an adult, but we're in a fourteen year old body when the reality is no, we're emotionally fourteen or maybe even seven. You know, who knows how old emotionally you were with all the shit that that happened was, to you. Yeah, and I was at that age. I mean, just to give you a point of reference, when I was fourteen, I um. I did very well in school. I played in the church bell choir, and I uh, crocheted sweaters for my stuffed animals. And um, I was a young 14, and um, I used to volunteer at a convalescent home. So, um, yeah. He he saw you coming from a mile away. <laughs> yeah. He did. He did. Right. You know, uh, I, I watched this. Was I reading a book or I was watching a documentary or something, but somebody was talking about, oh, I know what it was. It was this book that this woman wrote. Um, it was fiction, but it was kind of based on the Deborah LaFave. Remember her? The, the teacher that seduced. Oh, yeah. And it was written as a satire, but one of the things that this woman would look for in a victim was whether or not they would talk, whether or not she could control them. And that made perfect sense to me because I would, because right. she would be like, Oh, that, you know, that 14 year old's really hot. I really want to fuck that guy. But he brags to his friends right. and that's going to expose me. This other guy, you know, is gets good grades and he's worried about offending other people. I can get him to stay quiet. And I would imagine. Right, right, absolutely. That's what he sought out. I, I, right. I, I don't imagine any of those v victims that you knew were cantankerous and kind of no, all very loud and right. No, all boisterous. Very, exactly. Yeah. yeah. I hope I, I hope you can see that what is beautiful about you was used against you that that is beautiful what what he misused that's not and i hate to see that you're that you're blaming yourself because you're a personable person you know you're you're i liked you the first 30 seconds i met you you're like you have a nice smile you have a nice energy about you you're you're warm and you're and you're welcoming Thank you, Paul. I will increase that check amount. <laughs> I do appreciate you know, that. I just very kind. I hate to see people beating themselves up for the very thing that is special about them. So, oh, that's, I, I, that them's my two cents. Oh, those are good. Yeah, those are worthwhile two cents. I wanted to just getting back to. Um, I wanted to. I know this is completely tangential now, but. As an adopted kid, I think we deal with issues of identity and, um, and I, you know, I don't want it to make it seem like I was this perfect kid. I, I wasn't and I was a little bit of a weirdo because I made up people, friends and family that I didn't have. And I remember people would ask me about my ethnicity and I would make something different up every day. Like, you know, my grandmother's an Inuit from Alaska. <laughs> And my grandfather canoed over from the Azores, you know, and every day would be something. And at first people would be like, wow, that's fascinating. And then the next day, like, I think there's something mentally wrong here. <laughs> but in terms of like searching and trying to connect with a certain identity is definitely, uh, 
How could you not escape into fantasy, though, when, right. when you when your room is surrounded by stuffed demons? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How could you? How could you stay in your body for that right. experience? Walking on eggshells around your mom, mm-hmm. feeling like trash. That was I, what kid wouldn't escape into into fantasy? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely had a rich fantasy life. <laughs> I gotta say. I gotta say, Julie, you know, of all the coping mechanisms that people have from traumatic childhoods, yours are like the sweetest, like the least scary. Like, I, I hope you can get to a point in your life where you can see yourself through other people's eyes. Thank you. I appreciate that. I think how awkward would it be if I came on to you right now? <laughs> yeah, that's too funny. So pretty in that top, <laughs> my little baby, <laughs> my little baby guest. Too funny. Oh, God. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah, I love being able to laugh at, at the stuff because that's uh, yeah, it, that's it what helps. It's, it's about it helps so much. Yeah, it really does. Uh, what what's the next thing that you we didn't even talk about your brother? Oh yeah, yeah, my brother. I, you know, I loved my brother. I I loved that guy, and I still do. I just uh, I think that we were both of us were the quintessential products of a violent upbringing. Um, he became very violent and uh, got into a lot of fights at school. And he uh, was violent with me and beat me up. And I, I was a situation that he could control. He was bigger than me and stronger than me. And I remember when my mom went to hit him, he was about 16, and he caught her hand in midair, and he said, you will not be hitting me anymore. You will not be hitting me anymore. And she never hit him again after that. But I I have a lot of compassion for my brother because he went through the same, I mean, we, you know, the same sort of situation that I did in in a lot of ways. I've got good memories with him, and I also have some difficult ones. I I loved him so much, and I just wanted to get him to like me, and he just hated my guts. Like, he just hated my guts. And, um, and I remember, you know, my mom spent a lot of time locked in her room dealing with her own depression issues, and my brother, my mom rarely cooked because she didn't want to get her kitchen dirty. And we ate the most bizarre combinations of food. Like I remember eating like frozen Brussels sprouts mixed with cornflakes, you know, or or eating like Weiler's lemonade by the spoonful, you know, just out of the can, the powdered lemonade can or uh, eating the powder, like just eating the powder by the spoonful, you know, and um I remember we thought it was such a boon when we could go to Long John Silver's and pay like 19 cents for the fry dregs and the bottom of the fry basket. Like my brother and I would scrape together this change and be like, let's go to Long John Silver's, you know, (laughs) and just get like these. And I, and I think, gosh, how, how am I not diabetic or obese? Or I remember eating biblical quantities of sugar as a kid and, uh, um, yeah, it was such a source of comfort, I think, for both of us. And my brother was always very, you know, no one will ever love you. Uh, you'll you'll never have children. Uh, I remember him socking me in, in the boob when I was about 12. I mean, as hard as he could and telling me that he hoped that would give me breast cancer. Jesus. And he just did these sadistic, sadistic things. I told you he... Uh, 
he used to um, take my clothes off and make fun of my private parts, you know. He never did any, like, thing molesty, but... And, and you know, I think we're all self-conscious about our private parts. You know, we're all like, how does this measure up? I don't know, you know. And um, I... How old were you when, when he did that? He, I was about, probably about 12, 12 years old when he did that. And um, it's funny, later down the line, there's this website. It's kind of like a document. It's not, it's not a porn website, but it's called like A Thousand and One Vaginas. And I'm like, oh, I wonder I, what other people's vaginas look like, you know. Are you, are you thinking of the website uh, Vaginas of the World I don't, on Tumblr? I, I, it may be that one, yeah. yeah. But... Uh, and then you're like, okay, yeah, there are some idiosyncrasies in yes. that department. But um, I encourage anybody who has, especially young guys who've looked at nothing but porn pussies, to go to that website and and women who hate, right. hate their vaginas uh, to go to that website and see what a variety uh, there are because porn is having such terrible effects on women's and men's views of their their junk right totally totally um but but go ahead so he would he would make fun of uh of your body right yeah and um and did you believe him oh i totally totally believed him and you probably had body shame before that too right yeah and if you were conscientious yeah 12 year old exactly so I um, I no longer am in contact with my brother, and that was a huge loss for me to mourn. I, in contrast with my parents, I feel like my parents, even though they did some things that were not good, I don't think that they did anything out of sadistic malevolence. And I think my brother, unfortunately, did things that came from that place. And so um, it just ultimately was not safe for me to... to have a relationship with him as an adult which is sad you know it's so sad because yeah. I just loved him so much and he was my only companion for uh, um, we moved around all the time and he he was my my only playmate and so did you have nice moments with him oh yeah definitely what were, what were some nice moments in fact I recently because I don't want my I don't harbor resentment toward my brother I, I just feel like it's just better for both of us to I think that's a really important distinction that is about you protecting yourself right you know that it's not about punishing that other person and you don't even have to hate that other person to, to cut contact with them. Right. It's just that you love yourself. You're trying to love yourself. I'm trying to. I'm trying to take healthy steps to protect myself. And um, and I, I still love my brother. And I recently, just so that he knows that I love him and I'm not harboring anger or anything like that. Um, when I was a kid, about seven years old, uh, our father bought us these two little toys. It was the, those toys where you press the bottom and then they kind of like they were all connected with a string. It was a little animal that was connected with a string. It was like a little cork at the bottom and they did a dance or something. And of course, I broke mine within the first two <laughs> minutes. You know, I'm like, hey, this is oh. <laughs> and my brother immediately gave me his. And I kept that all these years. And I and I sent it to him just a couple weeks ago. And I wrote him a thank you note. And I said, you know, I, I'll always remember these kindnesses that you showed me. 
you know? So there you have that. <laughs> What's coming up for you right now? It's hard to let go of people that, that you love, you know? Sorry about that. <laughs> this interview's over. <laughs> yeah. There's no crying. <laughs> you didn't warn me I was going to have a baby <laughs> yeah. on the show. <laughs> How awkward would it be if I just if I got a tissue out and I started mimicking you crying? <laughs> and then I cut content with my brother. <laughs> she was mean to oh me. Oh my gosh, that was too funny. Oh, too funny. It does help to laugh about the stuff that's so complicated. Yeah. Have you ever been in a support group? I have, yes. What was that like? It was great. It was really, really great. I definitely need to revisit that. What What was the, the issue of the support group? centered on it was depression and uh, but it was interesting because and it would be good to get in like a a more specific one um how did you find it through uh kaiser permanente (laughs) yes i'm still one of these people that's hanging on to my health insurance by a thread so that's always a good feeling too yeah exactly isn't that fantastic russian roulette of health care right yeah um what would be do you want to touch on the abusive relationships that you had or do you feel like um they're worth going into i guess the question i have is how cognizant were you of this is unhealthy did did you were you afraid to get out of them did they progress in their unhealthiness is was there a pattern there was them. definitely a pattern. Um, I was definitely afraid to get out. One of my first relationships was extremely uh, physically abusive. And uh, this particular person used to tell me that uh, he was going to kill me. And I remember thinking, please do. Please kill me at your earliest convenience. <laughs> I mean, just because I didn't see any way out of it and miraculously I got out of that situation and got into another fabulous situation (laughs) right after what do you feel when you're around guys that are present and and genuine and have the ability to be intimate does it make your skin crawl does it why 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 did I make those choices why the guys and I know it's because of how you were treated as a child, you know, and what they say about, you know, trying to go back and, you know, redo, get a redo on the past. But I, I, I guess I want to know the feelings when you do encounter somebody that isn't 
a nut job that isn't controlling or abusive? Do you just feel nothing towards them? Do you is it boring? Is it exciting at first and then they bore you? What's have you had those experiences? I have had those experiences and I've had experiences where I had opportunities to date or go out with or have a relationship with a great person and I I didn't take it and I and I think um, the reason I didn't take it is because I didn't feel attracted. And I think that passionate attraction, for some reason, was cultivated around these chaotic situations, like feeling like, ooh, I'm, I'm so attracted to this person. And so the people that I was really attracted to, and I've had some counselors say, if you're really attracted to the person, you need to run in the other direction. Yeah, yes. <laughs> You know, and um, so unfortunately, I think it was that and I didn't recognize, I didn't recognize that. And I was also very uh, used to and conditioned to forgiving people who perpetually did horrible things. Sure, if you feel like you deserved it on some level. Right. What would you tell yourself? Would you say, oh, I brought it up, I shouldn't have said that, he was having a bad day? He. What were the excuses you would make in your mind for his behavior? Um, those types of things, like I, yes, I instigated it in some way, or um, it was definitely the cycle of violence in terms of he was very remorseful after each violent I- incident and would cry and tell me that it would never happen again. And I believe that. I mean, you really do. And I think that that person believed that too, but just couldn't control that. Would you escalate things or would you shut down how would you react as you could see him building towards this this rage um i would usually shut down i would just shut down and and because i would didn't engage it was like that kind of escalated even even more um or i i look i'd try to look for a place to hide and Oh, that breaks my yeah, heart. So, um, and I, yeah, I, I mean, and I feel a lot of shame. I feel so much shame that I chose these terrible situations and that, you know, I, I feel sorry for these, these people. And I think as a child, I was, you know, bringing home stray animals and my stuffed animals were like a ragtag collection of, you know, discarded ones like on in a gutter right, or that I bought for a quarter at a garage sale that were missing parts. And so I think, you know, I when people would cry and I would just, it would just break my heart. I'm like, oh, okay, we can work everything out. Everything will be fine. What? Do you have any moments in your life where you felt true compassion for yourself and what you've been through? Um, very fleeting. I think very fleetingly. It's tough, too, because I think most people that go through these things often question, Am I, was this real? Did this really happen? Oh, I so relate to that. And, you know, you think, am I just contriving this? But then when you, you know, there are these hard facts that, you know, are there. And um, and you were questioning your integrity as a, as a young child. So that's not an easy thing to undo, that, that 
tattooing of your psyche of I'm bad, I'm wrong. Right, exactly. We don't undo that generally on our own without intensive help, therapy, support groups, a social worker. Um, Because for me, the template was going to support groups around my fear of intimacy and developing intimacy with people whose stories were similar to mine. And then that became the template for me trusting and beginning to believe that I was lovable because they loved me. And I just can't help but thinking it would help you so much to get into a support group around, I don't know what it would be, um, fear of intimacy, love addiction. Have you ever read um, uh, anything about love addiction? I have, yeah. What did did that bring up or strike you as? Yeah, I I completely um, relate to it and... uh, and for me, it's like when relationships don't work out, that is, that's like the express highway to suicide for me. I mean, because I think it carries, there's so much behind it. Like, you know, you weren't good enough for anybody, you know, not good enough for your biological parents, not good enough for your, and then it just is, it's a snowball or avalanche of you suck, you know, and you'll never be, you know, worth anything. And, um, and the two times where I did try to, to off myself out came right after those situations went south. And just as an aside, um, I, um, during the, the, the phase of unconsciousness in each of those times, and those times happened about 10 years apart, uh, I... Unconsciousness during the suicide during attempt. During the suicide attempt. How, how, can I ask how you tried to... Overdose. Because, yeah. Yeah. And um, I just remember thinking the exact same thing both times, which was something very mundane, which was, I got to get back to planet Earth and feed my animals. You'd be surprised how many people have that exact same thing, either their kids or their animals, and but oftentimes they're animals, and yet they can't have the same compassion for themselves. Right. Right. And it's, you know, I don't have a relationship with my biological mother. I think that I represent a lot of pain and shame for her. And I totally get that. You know, she lives this different life now. She's a super successful person with another family. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, in a lot of ways, I feel like, you know, I was always, the the kids that I hung out with, we were always sort of the marginal kind of, you know, uh, and I, I always felt comfortable in those groups of, of people that uh, um, that felt like they, they didn't belong in some way. Have you gone through periods of promiscuity? I... That's, uh, you know, I um, I would say, okay, that I totally will answer, and I'll, yeah, I have no problem answering that question. I was raised to, um, you know, not be promiscuous in, in the fundamentalist religion. <laughs> and that said, by that barometer, I would say, yes, I have been <laughs> promiscuous by the societal barometer no i haven't but that said i am ashamed of 
those situations cause me the most shame when I reflect back and think, oh gosh, you know, uh, how did I, how did that happen? And you think. Because of the guys you chose, the act you did, the circumstances of, of it. Yeah, all of the above. And, and then thinking, I, I, and I think as a kid, I really idealized what my future was going to be like. I remember thinking things are painful and hard for me now, but I'm going to have a husband and a family and it's going to be sweet. It's going to be good. And I'm going to save myself for that person. And then, you know, yeah, Panda Scene 2, you know. <laughs> hey, yeah, it's, closing, right. it's closing yeah. time. Nice van. <laughs> That's a hoot. But it's just like. <laughs> the reason I ask is most people who have been victims of sexual abuse or exploitation go one way or the other their sexuality completely shuts down or they go through periods of promiscuity or both they alternate between one of the two and my experience has been both where i alternate between shutting down and then you know a flurry of either looking at porn or you know when i was younger you know being being really promiscuous um so I hope I didn't I didn't put you oh, no, on the no, on the, yeah, on the spot by that. Not I, at all. I I get this and I've shared this on the podcast before, but when I'm interviewing women who've been sexually abused, I have this little voice in the back of my head that is like Oh, listen to you, you fucking pervert. You wanna know more details. You wanna know that they're that they're pervy just like you <laughs> and that's too and, funny. And it's a it's a tough area for me as an interviewer because I'm constantly second guessing my integrity. But it's a totally valid question and I think it's something it's it's I think it's a a valid and adequate or appropriate qu- question because of that as you said because it either galvanizes like this hypersexuality or it just completely shuts you down like that. So um I mean, I, as I said, I think I totally romanticize the, you know, I will be a virgin, you know, when I get married. <laughs> so. What's the next thing? Have, have we touched on pretty much all the stuff? Are we leaving anything, anything out? Let's see here. Um, I think, you know, just talking about some self-care i have been through therapy several years i could use maybe 50 more years of it (laughs) or a prefrontal lobotomy um i yeah i um in terms of coping mechanisms i have there's a couple of things and that i wanted to mention they may be helpful they might not be helpful and the first thing is is I have had friends and family that have passed away, as we all have, and when I feel down or when I feel like I don't want to participate, when I do make the effort to participate, I picture them like up above, you know, cheering me on, going, yeah, you're doing it, you're living life, you're still on planet Earth and you're doing it, you know, and for some reason just picturing them up there is... Helpful. (laughs) Yeah. The other thing... It's interesting that you can't picture people being proud of you until they're dead. 
<laughs> I know, yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. I, what do you think that is? I don't know. I think that I, 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 my constant prayer now is, is Lord God, you know, if I die, you know, just take me to a place of, of peace so that I'm not, you know, constantly tormented or, and I have read hundreds upon hundreds of near death experiences. I think that I, um, yeah, I think I'm like, this life's shot. <laughs> Hopefully there's hope for the next one. <laughs> no, it's not like that. But I, you know, the near death experiences, most of them are very, very positive And there's a lot of love. And even the ones that end up in quote unquote hell, um, you know, they call out for help. It seems like help comes to them. And I just also, I, I'm not a fundamentalist Christian anymore, in case you were wondering. Are, are I, you a, a Christian? Is your faith non-denominational? I consider myself a Christian. I don't go to church. I'm very liberal in every aspect in terms of, you know, I'm pro-choice, pro-gay marriage. Um, if you want to see me have a grand mall panic attack, you know, you can drop me off at, at a uh, evangelical church. And um, it's tough. I feel jaded in that sense. I feel like I, you know, I think churches do a lot of good things, and there are good things to be gained from going to church. I don't really read the Bible so much because there are just some disturbing stories in that <laughs> book. Um, the other thing is the uh, Old Testament isn't very feel oh, good. Feel gosh, good. it's brutal. Yeah. yeah, Lot's like, here, take my daughters. I don't need them. Yeah. Rape them. Do what you want with them. <laughs> you know. So uh, the other thing that I do is um, when I'm really, really in the depths of depression, and you know, I'm, I'm single. I, I have to pay my bills. I've got to go to work. I've got to do my laundry and have these things to get done. And if I just want to, you know go to bed and stay in bed and I have these things that are hanging over me to do I'd have a timer a digital timer and I just say for 10 minutes I'm going to tackle laundry <laughs> you know I'm just going to set this for 10 minutes and then I'll go back to bed and I actually use that timer when I'm getting ready in the morning because I'm such a daydreamer that if I go to the bathroom without the timer I'll just like stare at the tile forever like I'll be like holy moly two hours have gone by wow you know, I can just kind of launch into a transcendental meditative trance, you know. Wow. Yeah. So, got to, like, keep myself on track. Just keep on track. And the final thing is, um, I uh, and I feel like I'm going to get some slack or some flack for this, but uh, I have read a lot about Holocaust survivors. They're so fascinating to me that anybody survived, you know, the, the, the coping and the survival skills that it took to come through something like that. And I always think I've read just dozens of books on that. And have you read Man's Search for Me? I have. Yeah. Victor so Frankl. Profound, yeah. It is. If you read any Primo Le Levy, he's He's kind of depressing. He ended up committing suicide after surviving the Holocaust. So maybe you could omit that one. But he's a really profound writer. But I think about um, like if somebody were to escape from a concentration camp and they're just, you know, crawling out of 
horror and they and for some reason this person ends up on my doorstep and I have to feed this person and clothe this person and love this person and keep this person warm and care for this person and and realize that you know that that person's me you know I have to take care of myself like that in the third person I'm glad you mentioned self-care and, and you know I, I would imagine anybody that has a relationship to the to the Holocaust, a personal relationship to it. I think they would be touched by knowing that because anybody that's been through something really difficult, if there's going to be any spirituality at the center of it, it's going to be how can I use this to help other people? How right. can how can this not be all bad? How can evil not completely win? And what you just said to me is somebody who um is looking for that that I don't know if lesson is the right word, but to take something from it um, so that the people that live through that it wasn't for it wasn't for naught that it can actually help humanity maybe take a step forward right right that's my that's my thought and I'm glad you touched on self-care because it is and especially for people who were sexually exploited it is one of the hardest things to practice to care about your body right it's very difficult very difficult i struggle with it constantly you know i shared that i went blind in my left eye about a year ago for for five minutes and i went and had some tests done and i still and after like the second one was inconclusive i was like i'm tired of caring for myself the last round of tests that were done i haven't i've yet to call the doctor to find out if they discovered anything because i just don't care oh my gosh you still haven't called no you need to call paul i don't it hasn't happened again if it had happened again right i would have called but honestly it's like the path of least resistance i get that with self-care what do you feel when you have those moments can you can you share a moment of self care that was? That I you, think that you yeah, and and they're very it's they're very mundane moments sometimes, like you said, like in terms of like I need to eat fresh vegetables and fresh fruits, and I am taking my vitamins now because this is healthy for me, and you know I'm drinking this jug of water because I'm hydrating my body and permeating my cells with you know water. So um, they're mostly like like that. And I think um, I know you mentioned Pema Chodron and who knows how to say her name, but she said, you know, the trick may just be to keep moving. And when you're moving, this is my addendum to the what she said, is just make the healthiest decision that you can for, for that moment. I agree. I think that's great. I, I think so often the key is baby steps because we want right. to do something. I'm going to become a Buddhist right. or I'm going to lose 50 <laughs> pounds instead of just I'm not going to take five more bites of this because, you know, if I just wait 15 minutes, I'm going to feel full. I've had enough to eat. Right. You know, maybe that's the place to start. Exactly. Returning your shopping cart, using your turn exactly. signal. Exactly. Yeah. Just little things like that where I'm going to care um, about the, the world around me and right. my place in it and take just a little bit of responsibility. Um, I don't know. The fuck do I know? 
that's perfect. It's yeah. perfect. Yeah. I said before we started recording, we might have might have time, might not have time to do the fears and the loves, but I have the feeling your fears and loves are going to be really good. Oh, no. And You're going to be like, oh, those sucked. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on? I, you know, I... What I, other horrors have we missed, yeah, exactly. Julie? I don't want um, people... I just don't want this to come off as a woe is me, and I, I want people to feel sorry for me. Put, or, put that thought to rest. Okay. It's not. It's not. It's, it's coming across as somebody who's seeking to better their lives, better their life. Um, uh, I'm reading, uh, continuing a list from Nadia, and uh, she says, I'm afraid I won't have the courage to leave this country when I finally can. I'm afraid I will snap and do something totally atrocious, like chuck a baby out a window, <laughs> and every good thing I have ever done in life will be neutralized. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, I'm afraid my boyfriend will fall in love with someone else and leave me. Oh, get that. Here's the next one of mine. I'm afraid of getting older and living a long life and watching all the dudes my age lusting and chasing after young chicks. Ugh. Uh, I'm afraid my parents will become very sick because of their self-destructing habits and I will be stuck here in the suburbs taking care of them. I think she needs to move out of the suburbs. Yeah, that might be a, a good move for yeah. Nadia. I'm afraid of getting burned beyond recognition and living through it and becoming a groaning crust of charred flesh. <laughs> That's why I wanted to do your fears, because I knew there's an inner writer in you that is uh, has such a way with words and imagery. Uh, I'm afraid my apartment will be for sale and I won't be able to afford to buy it. I'm afraid of becoming quadriplegic and losing the option of being able to commit suicide. I have that one, too. Uh, I'm afraid I'll run through my savings and won't be able to pay rent or living expenses and will have to ask my ex-husband for money. Oh, that's got to be painful. Yeah, that's difficult. I'm afraid when I die, I'll get sent back to this planet. God will tell me I was a fucking ingrate and will send me back to become a limbless torso in an African ditch. Oh, I, I'm glad I went with my instinct, which was to extend the podcast for uh, the the carnival going on in Julie's head. Yeah. Uh, I'm afraid I will never have the guts or patience to write a book. I'm afraid my elbow skin is beginning to resemble the scrotal sacks of elderly men. <laughs> Uh, I'm afraid my car will break down and I will have to get another one, which will eat half of my savings. I'm actually out of fear. <laughs> awesome. Those were so good. Uh, let's go to loves. Go ahead. I love it when I'm in a daydream and when I come back to reality, I have forgotten that this body is my physical manifestation on this planet. I feel this moment of being introduced to myself for the first time. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, Nadia says, I love putting on a piece of clothing I haven't worn in a while and seeing that it still fits. I love getting the mockingbird outside my window to copy my whistle pattern. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I love reading a very brainy and confusing book and realizing that a paragraph in it makes perfect sense, crystal clear sense to me. I love watching the Maria Bamford show on YouTube and her making me laugh so hard at our darkest struggles. 
I can I could tell about a half hour in that you're uh, a fan of Maria's. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Too yeah. Funny. Uh, I love hearing my daughter talk about me in a complimentary way when she thinks I can't hear or not paying attention. Oh, that's that's beautiful. And by the way, anybody that has never checked out Maria's comedy, go check it out. It is if there is a custom made comedy for this podcast, it is Maria. It is. It really is. She has she saved me really. Really. Um, I love locking into a tight harmony with my singing partner. Oh, that's cool. Um, As a tone-deaf person, (laughs) I look at people that can harmonize like Martians. Um, I love watching live theater from up close and seeing expressions on actors' faces and forgetting that I am watching them play act. Oh, that's a great one. That is good. I love the word bunt, as in bunt cake. <laughs> it Those is. Three it, consonants together. It is a good word. I love seeing older couples who seem very connected to one another. I like that. Yeah, me too. I love when my dog barks when she still has a ball in her mouth. <laughs> I love the smell of roasted broccoli. I love identifying flora and fauna with my Audubon field guide. <laughs> That may be the dorkiest thing I have heard in the loves. That's fantastic. Uh, I love hearing and seeing my boyfriend speak Spanish. I love it when my cat is walking somewhere and she stops and leaves one front paw hanging in the air as if she is weighing options and the placement of that paw determines something very important in her fate. Yeah. Uh, I love picking berries, especially wild ones. I love that, too. Oh, yeah, wild berries. Those are good. I love listening to this podcast. It really is an incredible blessing. Oh, thank you. I love hearing my two younger daughters talk in their bedroom when they are playing and getting along. That's got to be very nice. I'm out. Well, uh, let's end with uh, one of Nadia's. I love reading a quote that seems very relevant to my life uh, or inspiring. Well, uh, this may sound corny, but your my conversation with you for me has been uh, very inspiring and, and, and enlightening. And um, I'm glad we've met. I'm glad you contacted me. And thank you for, for being so open and honest and vulnerable and funny. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it a lot. Many, many thanks to, uh, to Julie J. And... Um, just love talking to her. Really, uh, really enjoyed her company. And um, boy, really a greatest hits of shit that can happen to a to a kid. And she's still standing. What a what a survivor. Um, before I take it out with uh, some surveys, I want to remind you guys that there's a couple of different ways that you can support the show if you feel so inclined. You can uh, support us financially by going to the website mentalpod.com and uh, making either a one-time PayPal donation or a recurring monthly donation for as little as five bucks. Once you sign up, you don't have to do anything unless you want to cancel it or your card expires. And uh, you can also shop through our Amazon search link, and um, that way Amazon gives us a couple of nickels and it doesn't cost you anything. You can buy a coffee mug uh, on our website. You can buy a um, T-shirt. We now have women's tees. Um and that is actually handled. I don't know if I have a link up for that yet, but those are being sold through Estoy Merchandise, um, which is E-S-T-O-Y uh, Merchandise.com. Uh, and um, 
You can support us non-financially by going to the uh, iTunes, writing something nice, giving us a good rating, or spreading the word through social media. That really, really helps. Or transcribing an episode. If you want to transcribe an episode, uh, email me at mentalpod at gmail.com. And just be forewarned, it takes an average typist a full day to transcribe an episode. Let's get into the surveys. This is from the Body Shame Survey, filled out by uh, a woman, um, calls herself, where is her name? Um, Oh, no worries, I am fine. That's what she calls herself. She writes, my face is too masculine, I'm too tall, my torso is too long and my legs are too short, my eyes are too squinty, my nose is too wide, my ears stick out, my feet are too big, I have manly calves. Most of all, I hate myself for hating my body. As a feminist and as a woman who loves other women of all shapes and sizes, I am deeply uncomfortable with my inability to apply my philosophical and political views to my own body. As a side note, despite being a lesbian, I rely on sexual attention from men to feel validated as a desirable and therefore worthwhile human being. This screams daddy issues. I know, and my relationship with my father is indeed distant, although this was my doing. Thank you for that. Um, this is same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Bill McNeil. He, uh, writes, I'm fat and I'm shaped like the world's ugliest pear. I'm also incredibly unhappy with my dick, which is the main reason I've never had sex. The funny thing is it's maybe average on a good day and certainly not a micro penis, but I still despise it. I actually like to order the micro penis when I'm at a really fancy restaurant. Um, let's see, this is same survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Will Chuck. And, um, this is, and by the way, these are all pseudonyms. So if you know anybody named Bill McNeil, don't walk up to him and go, I didn't know you got a small crank. Um, this, uh, Will Chuck, uh, what he dislikes about his body. He writes recently while hanging out with my girlfriend in bed, I saw a list At the top were two names, mine and a close mate friend of hers, a close male friend of hers. It was a list of pros and cons. The first one that caught my eye was under the other person's, and it read, huge dick. We'd had a bit of a rough patch recently, and neither of us were sure we'd make it through. I've always been insecure about my penis size and sexual prowess, as all men do, but this has rocked me to the core. Since then, our sex has been much less frequent and much shorter. I cannot bring this up with her because I feel like it won't accomplish anything. It's been months and I still think about it almost daily. The fear tends to dissipate when I'm around her, but comes back in full force as soon as we are about to be intimate. Dude, you got to talk to her about that. I'm sorry, but that's... And I'm not laughing at you. I'm laughing at what an uncomfortable situation that is. Um, but I, I don't see how that can be, how that's just going to go away on its own. That, that, that's my two cents. This is uh, from the Happy Moment survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Runner Gal. Um, she, is in, she is 50 
And she writes, my 50th birthday this past July, my dearest friends and partner, uh, who is female, each took a turn telling me how they felt about me and described what they liked about me. I was so certain that who they were describing couldn't be me that I was tempted to look to see who was sitting behind me. It was really hard for me to sit and listen to all of their beautiful words and kindness. I never heard these positive things growing up. As a matter of fact, I always believed that I was a loser. The positive words and feelings made me think, fuck it, I am a good person. I am a great mom. I am thoughtful and kind to other people, and I can accomplish anything I put my mind to. I really feel this way after hearing this. What a transformation. It also validated all the work I've been doing in therapy. Working with my wonderful therapist over the last four or so years has been transformative. I finally feel as though I am that person I always wanted to be, but just didn't know how to get there. I really feel as though I have arrived. I only hope that everyone has a chance to experience this. That's awesome. This is from the Shame and Secret survey, uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself, Paul, you're a great man for doing this show. How do I not read that? How do I not stroke myself publicly with that? Um, I wonder if that would be considered uh, uh, public exposure uh, for stroking myself by reading that. Uh, And I'd have to register as a... uh, is the word sexual offender this is uh he is male he is really he's male (laughs) fucking jackass uh straight in his 30s uh was raised in an environment that was a little dysfunctional never been sexually abused deepest darkest thoughts suicide i often fantasize about sex and intimacy with teenage girls deepest darkest secrets when i was a confused horny teen, I touched a couple different young girls inappropriately, the shame of which has always been a major driver in my self-hatred and thoughts of suicide. Um, Talk to somebody about that. Go talk to a professional um, about that Uh, or a support group or somebody, but, um, or, you know, a friend that you can really trust, but talk, talk to somebody about that because that's, that's just too much to, to keep inside. Uh, sexual fantasies most powerful to you my greatest fantasies revolve around feminization my wife would force me to start wearing women's underwear then clothes then makeup take complete control over our sex life and ultimately force me to be a sex toy for other men while she watches and masturbates thank you for sharing that by the way um do these secrets oh um can't see what the next question is because the printer cut it off um Darn it. (laughs) Oh, would you ever consider telling a partner or close friend your fantasies? Uh, I'm working on opening up and sharing with my wife, which has always been a very hard thing for me for fear of pushing my significant other away. I'm open to it, but it will take a while. Um, Do these secrets and thoughts generate any particular feelings towards yourself? Discomfort? Confusion. I'm not at all attracted to men, but the idea of not having the control and being dominated by both a woman I care about and who cares about me as well as a man is just indescribably exciting to me. Um, I think that's I think that's awesome that that you have um, uh, sexual fantasy that doesn't hurt anybody and that um, you know. Get into it, dude. Get into it. But yeah, I would uh, I would tread lightly in terms of uh, how you bring that about your partner. I think we have a responsibility too when when we have a fantasy to not 
overwhelm our partner, you know, with wanting, you know, something that might be so new and something they'd never thought about. Oh, shut up, Paul. Just shut up. This is this is from a survey that's rarely taken um, called The Young Male Abused by Older Female and uh, filled out by a guy who calls himself Mr. Twister. Um, he is in his 20s. Uh, he's straight. And he writes, When I was about five, I was repeatedly repeatedly molested by my dad's girlfriend. She would force my face into her naked crotch, made me suck her nipples, and would play with my penis. My dad knew what was going on, but for some reason never intervened. Also, I lost my virginity to an older woman. When I was about 21, I had a one-night stand with a woman in her late 40s. That night was preceded uh, by about a week of deep shame and embarrassment. She looked really good. It was preceded? I'm I'm confused because it's proceeded. Um, I'm not sure if if that thing caused the shame or the shame followed. Anyway, uh, she looked really good for her age, though, uh, for whatever that's worth. Uh, The only people that know about my molestation are my grandparents and a, quote, talking doctor I saw when I was about seven. As for the 40-something-year-old I lost my virginity to, turns out two of my friends were watching the whole time. They went back to the hotel room and told our whole group. We still had five days of vacation left, which is a long time to go to have to face a group of people with whom I was barely acquainted knowing the whole story. Uh, I still get teased about it, but I learned to just own it. Um, with the molestation, I don't feel anything. I don't remember a lot of hairy details, haha, <laughs> pube joke, and I feel completely numb about the ordeal. I can't tell if that's healthy or unhealthy. Sometimes I worry I have a victim complex and that I don't ex- exert myself to my full potential professionally and socially because of that. It's like I feel that because I'm a victim of sexual abuse, I allow myself to take a lifelong, quote, snow day. I still feel a little shame about how I lost my virginity, but I've decided it's really not worth dwelling on. Maybe one day it will make a funny story. However, I felt like the odd guy out with this particular group of friends and acquaintances, and this pretty much pigeonholed me even further. Uh, I've always felt socially awkward slash oblivious. I once heard a psychologist say that he can instinctually discern if a person is a victim of molestation. I often wonder if I exude whatever it is that those other people seem to put out. Sexually, I feel very deficient. I'm terrible at sex, and I'm too jumpy slash nervous to really take my time and get it right. I wonder how much of my problems are innate and how much was caused by my sexual abuse. Um, By the way, of all of the surveys that I've read, um, of males that were abused as boys by teenage or adult um, females, almost all of them have tremendous uh, performance anxiety and have little or no confidence uh, sexually. Uh, This next uh, survey is from Happy Moments survey filled out by a guy who calls himself Clark Kent. Uh, He writes that when my wife found out that I cheated on her, we had a bad year, but through it, we grew. Unlike some people, she was able to forgive me completely. It amazes me that someone could fight for a piece of shit 
uh, like me. It made me work for forgiveness and feel I was worth something again. After that, we took a vacation together, just the two of us, to Gatlinburg, Tennessee. We hiked, we hiked, um, and our cabin was near a stream. And we had our window open, laying in bed, feeling the cold air, and hearing the stream. And in that moment, we had no problems. We struggled for this moment of love and peace. Beautiful. I like the bittersweet ones. Uh, this is an email I want to read from a listener who calls herself uh, Kitters, and she writes, Paul, I'm the poster child for being mentally and physically fucked up. Among the myriad of health issues, I've struggled with depression my entire life. I'm a recovering self-injurer almost seven years. Prior to that, I self-injured on a daily basis for 23 years. When I was pregnant, no one warned me that childhood trauma memories would be intense as a mother. I was, and still am, constantly fearful of being a shitty mom. As my girls approached five and six years old, I started to have trauma flashbacks triggered by everyday events as normal children. I was already in therapy for five years at that point and realized cutting wasn't working for me anymore. I could either get treatment or move on to other forms of self-injury. One incident started the chain reaction of events leading towards my first and only hospitalization for self-injury. My youngest daughter knocked over a glass of milk at dinner. Immediately, I was launched into my first episode of disassociation. Um, I felt I was back at my parents' home uh, as the four-year-old me accidentally knocked over a glass of milk at the dinner table. My mom smacked me across the face and told me to go to my room. I froze in place trying not to cry and I obviously didn't move fast enough upstairs to my room. My mother grabbed my long braids and proceeded to drag me by my hair, pulling my body up the stairs. In that moment, my mind was trying to get back to my own little girl who spilled her milk. I felt I needed to punish myself for being lower than dirt, and I began to get up from the table to go cut myself in the bathroom. I stood there, looked at my daughter's face, and noticed she wasn't sure what my reaction would be. I bent down, kissed her forehead, and said, It's okay, darling girl of mine. Accidents happen. From then on, I knew this wasn't the legacy I wanted to perpetuate. I wanted to be a better mom, stop torturing myself, and deal with the triggers that lead to self-injury. I went to Safe Alternatives nearly seven years ago. It was the hardest thing I ever did. Safe Alternatives, I believe, is in uh, is in Chicago, and I've heard a lot of good things about it. Uh, I have struggled with the constant fear of fucking up my kids and being the worst mom on the planet. It still creeps in because I never had a positive parenting role to emulate. I now have two beautiful girls in middle school. They are happy, loving, smart, funny, creative, well-adjusted girls. I think I can count that as a win. I have a new therapist, my old one retired, who specializes in EMDR, and I'm beginning to deal with the memories slash flashbacks of childhood trauma. It's not easy, but nothing in life ever is. Thank you so much for that. And finally, I want to go out on a uh, happy moment filled out by Travis. And uh, he writes, I made my therapist cry at yesterday's session. She said, I am so happy you are progressing and using mindfulness on a daily basis. As someone who dislikes praise, I was shocked to find myself swelling with pride. I cried too, and I walked out of the office euphoric. That's so beautiful. Well, thank you guys for listening. Thanks to Julie J. Thanks for supporting the show by filling the surveys out and being donors and all the stuff you guys do, transcribing, going to the forum. I really, really appreciate it. And I love what uh, what we're we're building. I'm really proud of this and uh, 
brings a lot of meaning into my life. So thank you, and I hope that if you were feeling hopeless before you started listening to today's episode, you have a little bit more hope and you, you know that you're not alone. So thanks for listening. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up I know in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully Everybody fucked up in some weird way. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.